You know, I love that last song, Blessed Be the Name. It's actually the very words of Job right after he found out that he lost just about everything. He's actually praising the God of the Old Testament. Now, when you think of the God of the Old Testament, many people think lightning bolts and anger and and just mean God. And is the idea of a judging God archaic? I mean, did Jesus show up and say, hey, sorry about my dad back there? Has the cross made judgment or a judging God obsolete? I think that's the idea we want to look at today. And to do that, I want to tell you a story. Several years ago, I was interviewing a CEO of a, a large company here in Cincinnati. And he was an amazing guy who had to go through some downsizing for his company. And he personally met with the families to talk through the process. Well, as we were chatting, one of the things I mentioned to him is I just said, hey, where do you feel like you are in your relationship with, with Christ? And it was clear he was a very strong Christian. But it was interesting what he said to me. He said, Chad, I'm a red letter Christian. A red letter Christian. He was referring to the red letters are the words of Jesus in the New Testament. I said, wow, red letter Christian. He said, yeah, I'm not a big fan of the Old Testament. I'm not a big fan of kind of the God of the Old Testament. But I do believe strongly in the red letter words of Jesus. It was kind of his modern way of saying, I'm embarrassed by the God of the Old Testament. It was a way for him to frame the problems of a judging God and seemingly angry God from the Old Testament. I think for many of us as modern people, we think, oh, if I could just get rid of that whole hell thing, judgment thing, Christianity would be so much more palatable. But today as we continue our series, live like there's no tomorrow, that we can know tomorrow. And one of the things we can know about tomorrow is that we serve a loving and just God. And that just God, his justice is so important and so practical and not something we need to be embarrassed about. In fact, as I was talking to my friend that day, I said, well, you realize the red letters of Jesus are almost always quoting his Bible, which is all those black and white letters back in the Old Testament. He said, well, not the way I see it. Well, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, and he was not embarrassed by his dad, and he was not embarrassed by the Old Testament. So Paul's going to pick up on that idea here as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 again. If you remember when Drew was speaking to us last week, one of the things he mentioned was that God was offering grace and peace to them during persecution, right? And now he picks up on that idea and he says this, since it is a righteous thing, so already we see a connector, since connected to the previous idea, it is a righteous thing. So he's connecting the idea of whatever's gonna be talked about in this chapter is connected to finding peace or shalom or grace during difficult times. All right, since it is a righteous thing with God. All right, so this is a righteous thing from God. This is God's righteous thing, God's justice or administration of that righteous thing. All right, what's a righteous thing? Well, he goes on. 
The righteous thing is when he will repay with tribulation those who trouble you. That's a righteous thing? Yes. It's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. He's saying you actually want a God who judges those who trouble you, those who put difficulty into your life. All right, he goes on. And it's not just a righteous thing that he does that and to do something else. What is it? To give you something. Oh, this is kind of nice. So two things are righteous. To repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you, well, who's the you? You who are troubled. So there's a specific promise here for those of us who are troubled, who are persecuted, who are going through difficult times or weighed down times. What's he going to give you? He's going to give you who are troubled rest. There's some rest he's offering. All right? And that rest is the kind of rest that comes with us. Paul's saying, hey, I know what I'm talking about. We're going through tribulation. We've been imprisoned. We've been pushed back. We have felt that. And so the, the rest I'm discussing is the rest that Paul and Silas have experienced as well. All right. Now, when is that going to happen? Well, the full understanding of God's repaying of the tribulation to the troubled and the full experience of that rest is going to happen when Jesus Christ is revealed. So here's the main idea. And often when you hear maybe Drew or Ryan and I speak or guest speaker, you say, wow, where do they get these wonderful ideas? I wish I could do that. When you begin to take apart a passage of the Bible like this, one of the things that helps you understand is the main idea of the passage, especially with the Apostle Paul. He can feel so wordy and so verbose, yet it's so practical what he's going to say. I want to tell you about a righteous thing that's going to help you as you go through difficulty. Two promises to hold on to. Number one, God repays the troublers, those who trouble you, and he gives you who are troubled rest. And the full expression of that is going to come when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed. So this is incredibly practical. It's very practical in your and my life because when you and I are going through difficult times, we can hold on to these two promises. In fact, that's the main idea. Whenever you hear us speak about the Bible, we're actually trying to give you the main idea that comes directly out of the text. And outlining a passage of the Bible, the way we did, really helps you see the big idea or the main idea Paul's speaking at. So what is it? Since it is a righteous thing with God, it's a good thing. Paul's not embarrassed by this. In fact, he says it's vital that we understand this so that we don't take revenge or lose hope when we're living in a broken world. It is a righteous thing with and from God to repay those who trouble you and to give you and I rest when we're troubled, when we're going through difficulty. Now, that idea seems foreign, especially to us who are Westerners. There's a guy named uh, Miroslav Volv. He's a theologian and a leader in Croatia. And he got to see many, many people slaughtered through genocide. And in leading the church, And helping them, those who had families slaughtered, how did they not escalate the violence? How did they not make things worse? 
Well, if they listened to the Western idea, they'd say, well, God doesn't judge and you shouldn't judge either. He said, that is not going to help people who faced incredible difficulty. In fact, they need to hold on to the promise that God does judge. Here's how he says it. Imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, why should we not retaliate? Well, because God says we shouldn't. I say this, that the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that legitimate violence comes only from God alone. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God does not judge, that he refuses to take up the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of this thesis, that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge, because in a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasantries of the liberal mind. Now, that's very wordy. But what he's saying is, all through history, what keeps individuals from judging, for taking revenge, from escalating violence, is saying, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God will repay the troublers so I don't have to. I can trust his justice. I can trust him to hold them accountable. It frees you from bitterness. It frees you from revenge. Now, if that's too philosophical, think of every movie you've ever seen, right? When it gets to the end of the movie, your hero, the main character, defeated the henchman, right? And they worked their way up to the second henchman. And by the end of the movie, they take on the big bad guy. And the big bad guy has done horrible things the whole movie, right? He did this and that and this horrible thing and almost, you know, nuclear bombed this place and he, he, he did this damage to those characters early in the movie. And so what do you want? You want a, a death for the bad guy who's, that's worthy of his villainy, right? Every great movie has a death, a, a justice, a holding accountable of the bad guy for what he has done. And you get up the end of the movie or the book and you're like, yes, that's exactly what we need to see. The idea here is that God accurately, proportionally holds accountable the bad people in our life so that you and I don't have to hold a grudge and do it on our own. It's a righteous thing from God to repay the troublers and to give rest to the troubled. So let's look at that first idea together. What does it mean that God repays with tribulation those who trouble you? Well, when's it going to happen? Well, just like in my movie illustration, it always builds up to the end of the movie, right? You don't kill off the main bad guy at chapter one, a third of the way through the movie. When's this going to happen? When's this righteous administering of justice going to happen? When God repays the troublers? Well, there it is, when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed. He goes on. Well, he's going to be revealed from heaven. So heaven's going to come down. The justice of heaven comes upon us. He's going to come with 
his mighty angels. So the idea here is that when it happens, you're gonna know. He comes from heaven, he comes with angels, and he comes in flaming fire taking vengeance. So fire becomes a metaphor of God's judgment. It's not to say there isn't literal fire, but this is a clear teaching Paul has coming from Isaiah 66, not the red letters, where he's saying the judgment or the justice of God that's been taught all through the Bible is going to come in the future. And Thessalonians, you've thought you've missed it. You're you're not going to miss it. It's coming yet. When it's going to come is when he's revealed and you're going to know it because Jesus Christ is coming from heaven and he's coming with his mighty angels and there's going to be flaming fire that takes vengeance. All of this supports the righteous thing God does when he repays with tribulation those who trouble you. He repays the troublers. When? When Jesus Christ is revealed in flaming fire taking vengeance. So let's look at this idea together of what it looks like to trust God. I mean to really trust God to repay the troublers. It's one thing for it to sound philosophical. How does it get practical? How do we trust God to repay the troublers rather than us holding vengeance, holding a grudge, or taking things in our own hand? Well, he mentions here flaming fire. I think that's where many of us begin to get uncomfortable. I don't like the idea of fire or judgment or eternal damnation. That sounds like somebody on a street corner. Let's take the metaphor of fire for a moment. Fire was used by Jesus in Matthew 24 to discuss this idea. But where is Paul? Paul's been on a missionary journey. He has been in Thessalonica, so that's where this letter's written to, and he's on his way from Thessalonica to Berea, these two cities here in the book of Acts. And we're gonna see that persecution breaks out. Those from Thessalonica are so angry, so persecuting Jesus and his followers, they chase after Paul and Silas to Berea. Here's what it says. When they, Paul and Silas, arrived in Berea, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now those were more fair-minded than those back in Thessalonica. In that, they received the word with all readiness. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, who hated the Christians, learned that the word of God was being preached by Paul and Silas in this new location, they came there and stirred up the crowds. So persecution from the very beginning in Acts started in Thessalonica. Now, when asked about the end times, Paul references flaming fire. Jesus says the same thing. In fact, in Matthew 24, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. And when the Romans destroyed any place, they burned it with fire. Don't you ever try this again. And Jesus says, there's gonna be a time in the future that this temple's gonna be destroyed and it's gonna be burned by fire. And that is exactly what happened in 70 AD. But Jesus goes on in Matthew 24 and says, in the same way there's gonna be a literal destruction with fire of the temple, you can have hope that God will bring about a holy fire to destroy all that is bad, all that is evil in the future to come. So fire is a metaphor he continually uses for the justice of God. 
In fact, if you've ever seen a, a, a reference to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66 is describing this idea. The prophet Isaiah is describing at the end of time, there's going to be a time that fire is used by God to disintegrate all that is evil. There's going to be a new heavens and new earth. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, they're eternal beings that live forever, but their fire is not quenched. And they shall be abhorrence to all flesh. So this idea that Paul picks up on and Jesus picks up on comes directly out of the Old Testament. Now, you saw last week a picture of what Thessalonica looks like. Did you know that the kind of persecution that followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have faced has been all through history? It started in Thessalonica, but even in World War II, the Nazis came here to Thessalonica, and they killed 60,000 Jews. And so Jewish Christians or Jewish followers and Christians all through history have had to say, how do you face the horrors of evil and trust God to repay the troublers? One of the things we need to understand is who are the ones of which God is going to take his vengeance or his fiery flame upon? Well, again, Paul explains it. All under his main point that it's a righteous thing for God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, those who genocided you, those who unjustly punished you. It's going to happen in the end when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. On who? Well, he says, it's going to happen on those who do not know God. All right, so that's what he's going at. And there's a second category. And the way the Greek is constructed here, this could either be two categories or it could be two descriptions of one category those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. So why is God seemingly so unfair uh, with flaming fire eternally upon those who don't know God or on those who do not obey the gospel? What's the gospel? Think of it this way. Don't you throw trash into an incinerator, right? Is there anything bad about a righteous God burning up cancer, burning up betrayal, burning up selfishness, burning up narrow-mindedness or self-righteousness? No. In fact, we like, that sounds like a good thing. Let's burn up some trash. Exactly. So what is the gospel? What is the good news? That's what the word gospel means, good news. Well, the good news or the gospel is the idea that God has found a way to separate you and I from our trash. See, selfishness isn't just out there. Pride isn't just out there. It's in here. And so God is going to come at the end of life and he's going to incinerate or burn up the trash. What's the problem? The problem is we are attached to our trash. So the gospel, Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to die for us, to separate us from our trash so he could burn up our trash or our wrongdoing and rescue us. So if you do not know God and you do not believe or obey or incorporate the gospel into your life, what's the problem? You're going to be thrown out with the trash. And God went to all extremes to make sure that you and I could be separated from our trash. Now, 
Fire is used at the end of time in two ways. So when you see fire, most people think uh, lake of fire, the uh, hell, things like that. But actually, fire is used in several ways in the Bible. In fact, at the end of times or the end of days, the Bible describes that whole time period as the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord includes lots of stuff. Now, we're going to go through this in detail in the next eight weeks. But prior to a seven-year period of tribulation on earth, where there are seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and, and uh, the second coming of Christ, there is what's called the rapture. That's when Jesus comes to rapture his church up into heaven. And then there's something called the Bema Seat of Christ, where we're rewarded for what we've done, how we've prevailed, how we've trusted God during difficult times. And then, based on those rewards, we return with Christ to earth, where he sets up a thousand-year reign. Now, there's fire involved for Christians at the Bema Seat of Christ. There's also a later fire used of those who rejected God, and what Paul said, do not know God and do not believe the gospel. That is called the great white throne judgment. It occurs at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ where God burns up all of your wrongdoing and basically gives you a fair hearing. Did you li really live righteously? So two aspects of the fire. One, this Bema seat of Christ. Now I've done several messages on the Bema seat. So if you haven't heard that before, you can go to our app and check it out. Just look up Bema Seat or Rewards in the app. But the idea is that everything you've done, everything you've endured, every time you've obeyed or forgiven or swallowed your pride or persevered, every time you've given financially, every time you've served someone who wasn't grateful in return, God has been keeping track. And at the end of time, we're going to be raptured with the church up in heaven. And God is going to take everything we've done, a big pile of it. Some of it we've forgotten about. Some of it mm, we thought was better than it was. The Bible says God's going to basically light that pile of our good works on fire. And that refining fire is going to reduce what we thought was everything we did down to everything that was done for Christ that was done from Christ-centered motives. God is gonna reward us for that. Well, that is a motivation for living righteously through persecution. I'm gonna be rewarded for what God's given me, what God's done in me, how I respond when I go through difficulty on earth. So that's one type of fire use for Christians just to determine our rewards. That's not the fire Paul's discussing here. He's not discussing the Bema Seat. He's discussing the great white throne judgment for those who've rejected God and rejected the gospel. Where everyone comes before God and says, I, I deserve to be in heaven. I'm basically a good person. So the refining fire shows or reveals all the good things you think you've done. Oh, wow. There wasn't a lot of good there. And the fire reveals the truth of all the bad things you've done. Oh my goodness. They waste, oh, I forgot about that. Oh, I forgot about that. I forgot about that thought. And all of the bad things we've done are fully revealed. And then God as an impartial judge administers justice for our wrongdoing. Unless you believe the gospel. In which case you get separated from all your trash 
and the full judgment upon that came upon Jesus at the cross. So trust God to repay the troublers. Now this is why this is so practical. Because you and I, it's like how long are we going to wait for this thing, right? I can't wait that long. How do I right here and right now trust God to repay the troublers? I'll give you an example. About a month ago, I was talking at our exploring service about why we hold revenge and why we hold a grudge and that we are putting ourselves in the place of God. That's really what bitterness is. I am going to judge because I don't think I can trust God to judge. And, and God might give them more mercy than they deserve, so I'm going to keep a list and check it twice. After the service, I was meeting with one of, uh, one of our tenders just out uh, in front of the, uh, the Port of Kasher. As we were chatting for a bit, they said, you know, I'm really struggling with forgiving my daughter for something that she said and did to us as a family years ago. And one of the members of the couple said, you know, I finally forgave my daughter a few years ago and wow, am I feeling relieved. Then I turned to the other person and I said, how about you? And they said, I just can't let it go. I'm trying, I'm praying, but I just can't let it go. The hurt was so deep. The woundedness and the pain they caused went so deep I just can't let it go what's your advice I said well here's here's what I think the Bible might say to you you still think the benefits of holding a grudge outweigh the benefits of trusting God therefore your real problem is you're putting yourself in the place of God So if you come to the place that you realize you're not qualified for the job and if God chooses to show mercy to them, oh, I can't believe that. It's okay because he showed mercy to you. But that God can be trusted to handle this justice. And more than that, you want to be free. See, when you trust God to be the judge, when you trust God to administer justice, Here's the benefit you get right here and right now. I don't have to keep track. My conscience, my heart, my brain, all that energy, that mental energy that's been going into holding that to trying to be God and play God, I can release. And that's with uh, an emotional hurt. The Thessalonians were dealing with losing family members right? They were persecuted. They were tortured. They were sawn in half by both the the Hebrew Judaizers who hated Christianity and the Romans who will eventually crucify them for not bowing down to Caesar. Trust God to repay the troublers so that you and I can be free. All right, so let's go back to the text. So again, he's going to release on those who do not know God And he's going to punish those who do not take his rescue plan of the gospel. But he continues. He says, now this is the gospel, not every religion's the same. The only religion, the only philosophy, the only act of history that separated you and I from our trash was the gospel of the Lord 
Jesus Christ. That's the idea here. Now, he then says these. Now notice as you look at this, those, those, and these line up. This is a key idea he's paralleling. These who do not know God, these who do not obey the gospel shall be punished. How? Well, they're going to be punished with everlasting destruction. Now here again, I think, is this idea. We say, that's so unfair. People do small temporal things on earth and they get this disproportionate uh, consequence of everlasting destruction. Maybe. Or maybe you and I underestimate how serious wrongdoing is. Right? That's really the issue. When we say everlasting destruction is disproportionate, maybe we don't realize how serious it is. Think of it this way. When you lust after a human being, right? You objectify them. You've taken something eternal and turned it into an object to serve you as if you're God, your pleasures, your desires. What would proportionally uh, be the proper consequence to something eternally being objectified? what would require an eternal consequence to an eternal action. So I think the real issue is we don't weigh our wrongdoing appropriately and therefore we get ticked off at the consequence because we're not seeing things from the eternal perspective. So these will be punished with everlasting destruction. And what does that mean? What does everlasting destruction mean? Well, it's from the presence of the Lord. Ultimately, whatever hell is, it's simply being away from God's presence, from the presence of the Lord. Think of it this way. Everything that God is is good. Love, joy, peace, happiness, laughter. Imagine being in a place, you said, God, I don't need you. I don't want you. I'll be fine, thank you very much. Without your saving, I'm good enough. You're then going to receive what you've asked for. God, I don't need you. So God gives you what you've asked for to be away from his presence. But to be away from his presence is to be away from everything that's good. He goes on. And not only are you going to be punished with everlasting destruction and from the presence of Lord and from the glory of his power. The word glory means weight. The full weight of his power God's power to redeem, God's power to comfort, God's power to love. You're away from all those good things. Now, I don't want that. And I know you don't want that. And the good news is God put the answer right here, the gospel, a way to separate you and I from our trash so we don't have to be incinerated in God's holy incinerator. Now, into this idea, we now move into the second point. Remember, he said, repaying the the, those who trouble you, but he also wants to give you who are troubled rest. This idea somehow gives those who are troubled rest. So how do we do that? How do we trust God to give us rest? Well, part of that rest is the shalom, the peace that comes from God in the midst of our current circumstances, knowing that God's gonna eventually repay the troublers. But the other part is the rest of knowing that God is going to reward me, give me rest for everything I've endured. Let me give you an example. He says, to give you who are troubled rest. The word troubled means to be crushed. 
to be trampled on. It's the same word used of smashing or crushing of grapes. So when you've been crushed, when you've been smashed, God says, you're going through horrible times, but I'm telling you, the rest I have, the reward I have for what you're enduring and what you're going through is gonna make these persecutions as big and difficult as they are, pale in comparison to the rest and the reward and the joy I will give you for what you've gone through. It's gonna happen in the day of the Lord. And that's again, notice in verse 10, he starts mentioning that the troubled get rest in that day when he comes. In fact, the day of the Lord is mentioned in Isaiah 66 as well. When the new heavens and the new earth come, which I will make, they shall remain forever. This is the rest, all of earth rests. No more crying and no more sorrow and no more pain. So shall your descendants and your name remain. You can remain. The new heavens and new earth, you reward. You're living eternally. No more pain, no more destruction. Everything is finally fixed. You have rest. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh, all flesh shall come to worship me. So what the Bible describes as the day of the Lord includes this thousand year reign of Christ when curses are broken, there's a brand new temple, Satan is defeated, Christ ruling on earth, and then he sets up a new heavens and new earth. And that new heavens and new earth is when literally heaven comes upon the earth. Remember the Lord's Prayer? What do we say in the Lord's Prayer? We say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the day of the Lord, heaven descends upon the earth and everything experiences rest. All right. Again, we don't want to just wait to the future to get that rest, right? We want, how do you experience the rest now? I had the opportunity for our exploring series on Nehemiah to interview my friend Rich Palmer. And Rich discussed how he found rest in bringing God's kingdom to earth, doing his business now in business, and trusting God when the hardships and challenges of the finances of 2008 and now COVID-19 began to affect him. Listen to his story and notice the rest he found in the middle of challenge. Well, Rich, it is great to have you with us today. I thought it'd be great to hear your story because you know what it's like to pursue a vision, have a burden, see a need, and then also know that even when you pursue a vision, it can come with discouragement. It can come with challenge. It can come with the unexpected. And specifically, Nehemiah's story in the Bible motivated you professionally. Tell me a little about what happened 10 years ago through the story of Nehemiah that motivated you to start a, a, a new business endeavor. Yeah, so uh, we started a company called Nehemiah Manufacturing uh, a little over 10 years ago, as you said. And, you know, I had uh, spent most of my career in, in corporate America. I always thought of myself as an entrepreneur, but in reality, I spent uh, most of my career working for large companies like Deloitte and uh, Procter & Gamble. But uh, coming out of the, the Great Recession, uh, saw an opportunity to uh, start a consumer products company and locate it in the inner city. And at the mm -hmm. time, was really feeling... I'm pulled to better integrate my faith uh, with my work and um, felt like as a business leader could really make an impact in the inner city doing that. So uh, we started Nehemiah with a 
mission of building brands, creating jobs, and changing lives. And the way we did that is to uh, basically create light manufacturing jobs um, that required kind of low skill um, in the inner city, mm. uh, first in the West End and then in Lower Price Hill. And you felt like you guys were really breaking the, the patterns of generational poverty and impacting really legacies of generations of new jobs, new careers, new family opportunities through this business. What was it like for you to go from a pretty safe career path to now go, I'm going to take this step and maybe face challenges, 2008 challenges, to align my, my professional life with uh, this calling that I had? Yeah, uh, you know, a little bit was, uh, it seemed like a very risky time to start yeah. a job in, in 08 and, and take that leap. But, uh, you know, on, on the flip side, uh, everyone's job was at risk at the time and a lot of companies were really struggling. So mm. kind of felt like if there was any time to, to take yeah. that risk, that, that was a good good jump. And then for me, I just, uh, my faith was uh, just really growing at the time. And I mm. felt this disconnect between um, my faith and then where I spent most of my time, which was at work mm. and really wanted to find a way to better align that and to be able to use my uh, time, talent and treasure to make an impact on people, mm. um, you know, beyond just making money and, and really helping to build into our employees, to treat our suppliers differently, um, to, you know, treat my colleagues differently mm. and really operate a business that is about glorifying uh, God and, um, and he blessed that. Or it's just been great to see how God has grown you through that process. And when I read through Nehemiah, I'm reminded that we all have sand ballads, we all have Tobias that come into our own life that discourage us. And sometimes it's related to the economics. Sometimes with COVID, it's been related to like everything hitting us at once. But I love your example and your advice that continually all through history, we see people who have hope in God, I'm going to win in the end, trust in God, he's with me in the middle of it, and we find it's that resolve and confidence in God that allows us to trust something that's even bigger and more significant than our circumstances. So like you saw with Rich, at some level we can experience some peace now, some confidence now. However, as Paul ends here, when he comes, which modifies again this when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed, here's another point. When he comes, what's going to happen? Well, in that day, the day of the Lord, when he returns with rest and with consequences, what does he want? He wants to be glorified in his saints. Have you and I spent our life living in such a way that people give weight or glory to God for what we do, how we give, how we serve, how we love? And in that day when he comes, are we gonna, is God going to be admired among all those who believe. Look at that. God wants to be glorified and admired in the saints, in you and in me, because our testimony among you was believed. What does that mean? That means you and I and what we do now matters. In our difficulty, in our tribulation, are we living in such a way that people say, wow, God lives there. That patience, that kindness, that generosity, that forgiveness, that caring for other people. Wow, God lives there. That's this idea. In fact, I think one of the most important things he's saying here is our key takeaway today. God wants us to live in such a way that others will be glorified and admire who he is. Are you living in such a way that those watching you can see you not taking revenge because you're trusting someone else to administer justice? 
Are people sensing you have a rest when everyone else is anxious and fearful? Are they glorifying and admiring something in you? That's the idea he's getting at. I sat down with lunch about a month ago with a guy who's a good friend of mine. He said, Chad, I have been watching services sometimes two or three times each service since the COVID crisis. And I am growing. He said, I've been a guitar player, which I didn't know. And so I've been playing along with the guitar with the worship songs for our equipping service. And so we've turned our basement, or our living room rather, into a, a worship center for the family. He said, I can't tell you how God is growing me. He went on to talk about how successful his business has done in COVID. Now I've heard lots and lots of people that we've interviewed who've had challenges. His business has exploded. And he said, I am so thankful to God how he's growing me spiritually and growing my business during this time. He said, I'm worshiping more. I'm digging deeper into the Bible now. And I can't thank you enough how the Bible studies, how the, the impact of the church's mission has helped us. And that's why we started, right? We're trying to comfortably connect people to God through the Bible in a community of growing Christ followers. We're trying to help you connect with God so you can trust what he's gonna do in the future, but so you can also know the peace and the confidence of God now. So he got done talking, he said, I'm growing so much spiritually, does the church have any financial needs? I said, well, yes, without a doubt. He said, well, you know, I know I'm a little bit late on signing our check or writing a check out. I just wanna give generously to God at Horizon because of how much I've received. And I was really humbled by that. Here's a guy who's worshiping, business is growing, and he's just sensing God's work. He's sensing what Paul said in Galatians. God's being glorified. God's being admired in his saints and among those who believe. In fact, that's where we are as a church right now. We wanna pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as you know, right now we're running two services, right? We have two services on the weekend, 9.15 and 10.45. Spaces for God to be glorified. Now right now you need to make reservations for those to make sure we have seats for you, both here in the chapel and the tent. The good news is our facilities team thinks we can keep that tent heated all the way through at least Christmas Eve services because we're so excited about what's planned for the future. So we're gonna continue to use the chapel and the tent at least through Christmas Eve, if not beyond. Now, we're gonna offer that through our reservation series or services, you need to go and get reservations each week. So we have space for everyone. However, those two services have had a family edition exploring service, and that's gonna come to an end on November 8th. What do I mean? We're gonna start reopening our children's program. We have listened to the parents, You've said, many of you, we want to come back. We want our kids to come back. We want our kids to dig into the Bible and admire God too. Some of you have said you're not ready. That's great. We're going to continue to offer online services in an ongoing way. But if you're ready to come back and your kids are ready to come back, we're opening our children's ministry for both the 915 and the 1045 service. What does that mean? It means we're no longer going to have the family edition we're gonna have back to what we used to do, two adult services 
and we're going to have a full children's program. So what's that going to look like? Again, 9-15 uh, on November 1st, you can start your reservation program for the launch on November 8th. On November 8th, we're starting the launch of our children's programs. So 9-15 equipping with children's programs. We're no longer offering the family edition. We're going to go back to our regular exploring service because we're going to have a complimentary children's program. The team has figured how to do this safely, how to do this with everything cleaned up so that kids can come back and rebuild community and dig deeply into the Bible. That's what we're about as a church, right? What have we been studying today? Heaven coming to earth, the time in the future. But isn't that exactly how Jesus taught us to pray? Jesus said, don't just wait to the future to find peace and love and forgiveness. Pray it daily. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. As you listen to this next song, it's being sung by my friend Morgan who's been attending our church. And he came to know Jesus for the first time about a year and a half ago. And let this song speak to you of what it means to trust his kingdom to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Hallowed be thy name. Deliver us from evil. For your kingdom is the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.